This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. It is Opposite Monday here on Detroit Today, a time when we try to invite somebody in who sees the world a little differently than I do, maybe sits across the political divide. And in that role this week is an old friend of the show who has not been here in some time. Phil Pavlo is a former Republican member of the Michigan State Senate. He represented a district 25 from 2011 until 2018. Phil, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for inviting me back, Stephen. Yes, it's great to see you. Um, so I want to start, we're going to talk about state politics and national politics with you. Uh, I want to start with something extremely local for you. Paul Mitchell, who is the member of Congress who represents the district that you represented in the Michigan State Senate, uh, also a seat that you ran for, uh, has said he is not going to run again for Congress because it's the kind of place that no one would want to work, that people can't get their work done. This is something we've heard from, I don't know, I don't know how many members lately. Uh, and Dave Trott, who is another Republican member of our delegation, left a few years ago saying something really, really similar. I am really eager to hear what your reaction is to what Paul Mitchell is saying and whether somebody like you, who has served a long time in our state legislature, feels the same about Washington. Is that a place that you don't want to go because you don't think you could accomplish anything? Well, I sort of disagree with the premise, and I was taken by surprise when Paul made his... Uh, yeah, I was. Um, because, let's face it, public policy is never easy. Public policy is the long game. Uh, the things that we're talking about, state and local, have been conversations that have been being entertained for, you know, decades or longer. And, um, you know, but I think that the next group of lawmakers that decide to make that commitment to serving in the U.S. Congress need to be a different breed. They need to be, um, they need to go into that job with eyes wide open and understand that, um, you know, you're one of 435. Uh, when you get there, you're a backbencher. And when you get there and then you're removed from the um, from the majority, you become even a further backbencher, and the job just gets more difficult. But the job of a representative, a U.S. representative, is to represent the people and their needs in their community. And if that's the premise that you go into this job with, then you understand that you've got to fight, you're going to lose, you're going to win, you're going to lose a lot more. Um, but I think it takes a different temperament. And I think that you know whether or not Trump gets elected in the second term or not, um, the dynamic there uh, will begin to change when the people with the right focus start taking those seats. So, so I, I think that's really interesting. One of the things that, that, that you're talking about there in the context of someone like Paul Mitchell or a Dave Trot, I remember talking with both of them before they got the, the seats that they, that they ran for and, and feeling as though they had, uh, I don't want to say a misnomer, but certainly maybe a misunderstanding about not just the role of uh, one representative out of 435, but of the job that they're being elected to do. I mean, these were people with, with really big ideas about government and how it should work. And really, as a member of the House, for instance, and as you point out, as an early member of the House, you don't have the opportunity to do that. Um, and I worried, I worried in both of their cases that if they were elected, they wouldn't like the work and wouldn't stick to the job 
um, what you're saying, I think, really shed some light on why there's a disconnect there uh, in in some cases. Well, it is. And, you know, people elect you to serve in these roles based on what you have previously done. And, you know, the the mantra has always been, you know, if you were a job creator and you were successful in the business world, um, that sort of qualified you to go take care of the business of the government, whether it be state or federal. Um, in many cases, those are transferable skills, but there's a cooling off period before you can actually get in and, mm-hmm. and execute the kind of things because what you find out instantly is just how big the system is. And you might not figure it out in your first year, but you're maybe your second or third term, you realize that it's that big by design. And the complexity and the bureaucracy is there to maintain um, the direction Some of the stability, gears. stability, right? Well, that's what it is. And so, you know, we move it incrementally in either direction based on the political party in charge. But in the end, the machine doesn't move that far. So that leads me to my next question, which is that is now an open seat for Congress uh, in a district where you live. Are you thinking about running? Well, I've given it some thought, to be honest. I mean, it would be, you know, I would be, it'd be facetious to say that I hadn't thought about it. Um, You know, but there's a lot of unknowns. And quite frankly, being on the other side of that life right now is pretty enjoyable. Yeah. Um, You know, I'm enjoying it. I've started a business. We're doing some good work in our community as well. And, um, you know, my commute went from 250 miles a day to five. (laughs) And, you know, so my gas budget is in line. But, you know, I've thought about it and I've had, you know, many people reach out to, you know, gauge my interest. But I'm watching it. Um, I think it's compelling uh, the fact that there aren't any real people flocking to the seat. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think if you look at Justin Amash's decision to leave the Republican Party, run as an independent, I think there's four or more solid, credible Republicans running in that district. I think it's a signal toward some of the instability in our political system. Mm. And by that, I mean, um, you know, the voters changed the Constitution in 2018 to change redistricting. Yes. And, you know, the 10th Congressional District is a plus 14 Republican seat now. Uh, what does your reelection look what like? What will that look like after an independent commission after, that's got Republicans and Democrats on exactly. it? Exactly. And then figure, you know, you still have to calculate the fact that there's a potential that we would lose one congressional seat just based on the, um, on the census mm-hmm. results. Now you've got a much larger district and, you know, you could be living with, um, you know, in the same district that, um, you know, Congressman Kildee lives in or mm-hmm. Congressman Levin or, mm-hmm. you know, so there, I don't think there's that predictability. Um, so I think there's a number of factors why there isn't anybody in there. I mean, yet, but you know, I think that there's conversations going on to, you know, get the right people in there and that's what the process is for. So I'll watch it closely, but you know, not ready to. Yeah. How long do you think you have before you have to decide? Well, the filing deadline is in April, so. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to wait that long. <laughs> I know you won't wait that long. Um, all right, I, I want to talk uh, about the news this morning as well. The, right before we went on air, we heard that there is a potential budget deal between Governor Gretchen Whitmer and the Republicans in the legislature, and that that deal will take shape without a roads package, without a comprehensive way uh, of addressing the, the the terrible condition of the roads here. I, I, I want to get uh, your reaction. Up until uh, nine months ago, this was your problem and your job as well to try to solve that problem. Um, what do you think of the idea of getting a budget done and then maybe trying to, to tackle roads? Well, they will get a budget done. I mean, it's a constitutional obligation. 
Um, I never bought into this idea that there could be a government shutdown because of it. Um, for because a number of, of roads, reasons. You mean? Yeah, because of roads. You know, when we look at the budget shutdowns of 07 and 09, you have to remember in the context, those were $2 billion budget shortfalls. And Michigan's economy was circling the drain. We, uh, we were just not in a position to be able to get any kind of agreement. Well, today that picture is very different. I think the other thing that that is significant in this argument is the fact that there hasn't been a piece of legislation that's been introduced to raise that fee. And so when we look at the budget in the state of Michigan, um, we're starting to kick in the additional revenue from increased registration, from the incremental increases in the gas tax. Those are all coming in. Those are part of the budget. The piece that's missing is a new revenue stream. Right. And you can't inject that in a one-year budget. That has to be a legislative agreement between um, the legislature and the administration. So, so I wonder what you make of the tension between the governor and Republicans. And we don't know all of the dimensions of it because they've agreed to keep some of it private. But I think in, in broad strokes, it is this question between new revenue and uh, new efficiencies. In other words, is there money already in the budget that could be repurposed uh, or, uh, or or made more efficient in the way that it's collected in, in a way that would put more money into the roads? Or do we need to raise more money than we already have? I wonder where you come down on uh, on that question. Well, you could always increase revenue into the road structure. And I don't think that many people would have that argument that the investment isn't worthy. But to use a plan that was the last guy's plan and that failed miserably was never going to put, I didn't think it was ever going to put the governor in a win position on that. And, you know, while her, you know, campaign slogan about fix the roads uh, was effective. It didn't have any substance behind it. And what you find out is, it, you know, it just becomes an applause line. But the real work on road funding has always been and will remain, um, you know, one of pace and one of progress. And um, that is the overarching, you know, reality. The people of the state of Michigan um, by 80% rejected mm-hmm. the new gas tax structure. Um, and I don't think that they were ready to be asked to do that again. Do you think the governor made a mistake coming out as strongly as she did, as early as she did with this 45-cent gas tax idea? I mean, at the time, everyone thought of it as bold, but because she hadn't done any of the work to to get support for it, I mean, it literally got slaughtered. I mean, there was nobody who came out in favor of it, really. Uh, the polls on it said that people really didn't, understand, uh, you know, why it would be so big and they weren't in favor of it. I mean, was it a strategic error or or was that a substantive error or both? Yeah, I think it was two things. I think um, the governor was riding the, um, you know, the excitement of winning a race on the issue of roads and put a marker out there as far as possible. I understand her intent on doing that, but I think she miscalculated the impact that it would have. Um, there wasn't even you know, anyone among her party that were willing to put that out there. And I think that that's probably where it went wrong. And I think that, you know, the legislature in this case had the better argument. And so going forward, uh, I mean, you've been in in Lansing before when grand ideas end up uh, crashing and burning, but you still have the problem that they were meant to address lurking around. Do you think that they can come up with a reasonable roads plan 
without the the, the, the threat of this budget deadline, is, is that going to make it easier to come up with something or is that going to make it less urgent? Well, I, I think you touched on it a little bit earlier. You know, we don't see all the conversations and I'm not privy to them anymore. But I will tell you that there probably wasn't a day that went by during the summer that the legislative leaders weren't in direct contact either with Governor Whitmer or her staff on trying to find a consensus. Um, you know, both Leader uh, Shirky and, and, and Speaker Chatfield understand this issue, um, but they're just, they're not going to be prone to mistakes like, um, you know, putting something in front of the voters that would be resoundingly rejected. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking politics, both state and national, with Phil Pavlo, a former Republican member of the Michigan State Senate. Stay with us, and stay with us on the phone. Scott and Westland, Bill in Dearborn, we'll get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest on Opposite Monday this week is Phil Pavlo, a former Republican member of the Michigan State Senate. He represented District 25 from 2011 to 2018. We're talking about state and national politics. We're talking about the emerging budget deal in Lansing, which uh, was announced this morning without a significant roads package. Is that something you think is a great idea, or are you disappointed that the governor's signature campaign issue from last year, the idea of fixing the damn roads, as she said, isn't going to happen as part of her first budget? Uh, if you want to join that conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Scott in Westland. Scott, welcome to the show. Uh, hello. Hey, Scott. Um, well, basically, um, I think that the state should be collecting gas taxes while gas prices are low. So I propose a temporary windfall gas tax of 10 cents a gallon. You know, it's a windfall tax in that it would go away if gas prices went above 350 or $4 a gallon. The ceiling would be negotiable. And also it would be temporary, and it would only last for, say, six months or 12 months, and then the uh, legislature and the governor would have to revisit it. It basically would be an interim policy that would just uh, take advantage of the opportunity that we're losing. And we say lost for the last six months where gas prices are low. You could throw ten, another 10 cents onto a gallon of gas, and I think most people wouldn't notice, hmm. and you would be able to start building a road fund. Now, the thing I would say about the, which, if there's something wrong with this policy, is that it doesn't have anything to do with the actual, any fiscal analysis of the actual need, and that's the credit that I would give to uh, Governor Whitmer's, uh, you know, a heftier gas tax, is it's probably more realistic as to what the need actually is. But I think that, you know, uh, they say, as they say, make hay while the sun shines. Gas prices are low. <laughs> while you're arguing about a long-term solution, let's throw ten cents, on, another ten cents, onto uh, a gallon of gas for roads. Yeah, Scott, that's a pretty inventive uh, approach to to the uh, to the revenue question. Uh, Phil Pavlo, I wonder what you think of of that idea. Temporary, 
gas tax to try to get some of this revenue while people are not really paying attention to how much they're paying at the pump. Well, I appreciate Scott's line of thinking there, but um, <laughs> having been around the process, I don't ever remember a temporary tax. Um, they tend to have a significant amount of longevity. The other problem that we have with that is that gas prices are so volatile. They're up and down. Uh, we have zero control over it. Um, you know, but you know, let's not think of the low gas prices today as being a bad thing. I think that since we've become somewhat energy independent in the United States and are developing our own fossil fuels and our, our own energy at a great scale, leading the world now, um, when you think about those low prices, it certainly represents probably the largest transfer of wealth in the country. Um, so the working families who are you know struggling to make ends meet or living paycheck to paycheck or trying to get some stability, um, that that price of um, of fuel has a significant impact on family budgets. Right, but so does the uh, broken axle or uh, the other cra- windshields and all the other crazy stuff that goes on on our roads. I keep saying, look, I'll pay. I will pay 45 cents uh, more a gallon to save the $1,200, dollars $1,400 I'm paying a year in car repairs. Yeah. Well, I think one of the plans that came out early uh, from Speaker Chatfield when he first took over back in January, um, look, what you're paying sales tax on that gasoline and it's not going to the roads. And I thought that that was a pretty straightforward. That um, we still have this really strange formula by which gas tax gets divided up among a, a number of different things. Yeah, we take the state. gallon of gas, we put a bunch of state and federal taxes on it, and then we tab that up and we time it times 6%. Um, you know, the problem and the, the pushback on that issue is, you know, that money is solely directed toward education. So, um, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't count out that piece of revenue. Mm. Um, and then watch our school aid budget, which I, you know, paid paid close attention to that over the years. Um, we're starting to see and continued growth in that school aid fund. Yeah, uh, I think one of the more dangerous proposals that I've heard, and I appreciate the governor squashing this, is you know somehow playing with the retirement payments that we're making to our school employees. Yeah, I think that's a terrible idea. Yeah, and you know, we worked so hard for, you know, over a decade to try to stabilize the retirement system for our educators um and to risk that by bonding out 40 or 50 years into the future uh, is you know, to me it looked um it looked very dangerous. So, um again, I go back to the fact that it's incremental and and quite frankly, when you look at inflation, it affects everything, but it's it's disproportionate when it comes time to dumping new money into infrastructure. We have limited amount of companies that can do that work. The price goes up. Are we getting the biggest bang for the dollar? Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Scott, thanks very much for the call uh, and the really inventive approach to road funding. Let's go to Cindy in St. Clair Shore. Cindy, welcome to the program. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? Good. You know, I'm I'm sorry, I just want to throw in my uh, two cents here. Sure. When I hear about a, a tax being levied like that, my hair stands up on my, on my arms. I continually think we need to balance the budget we have, use the money and the taxes we've already put in. Uh, I haven't had the chance to look at our budget, but I, I'm sure there's a lot of loose money out there that can be used that won't hurt people who have been have been promised money, like our, our teachers that are so important and, and their pensions or, or their payments. I think that we should look at um, other means. If we needed to leverage a tax on anybody, I think we should go after the Teamsters. 
have a lot of money. They're the ones who have special agreements. At least they always did before in Michigan. They uh, carry teamsters. heavier loads <laughs> more often. You're talking about the, you're talking about trucks. About what? You're talking about heavy trucks on the roads. Yes, heavy okay. trucks. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Cindy. Uh, you know, I I, I want to get Phil to respond to what you said, but but this idea that there's money that can be found in the budget is is a really common theme that I hear from people. I I always want to ask them where they think that money is. What what do you think we can take money from inside the budget to to spend on roads and not hurt something else? You still there, Cindy? Yep, I think we lost Cindy. She didn't want to talk about it that much. Uh, Phil, Phil, what do you think of the idea of uh, finding the money somewhere for roads? Well, look, um, in lame duck last year in December, we found over a billion dollars worth of additional revenue. There are some things that, um, some signals that are pointing in the right direction for Michigan. Uh, I go back to the Wayfair decision where Michigan is now collecting a significant amount more um, on internet sales, that turned into a two hundred million dollar um, new revenue source yeah. just last year alone. Um, I think our growing economy. When you have unemployment, we're, we're essentially at full employment in the state right now. Uh, unemployment claims are low. Michigan withholding and income tax is high. So you have to look at those areas of the budget that are seeing growth, like the school aid fund. Let's keep that where that belongs, but general fund is as well. So. Um, there is always options, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if the, you know, the, the, the leaders in Lansing today are looking at you know, presenting a much larger investment in infrastructure in this year's budget, absent the potential 45-cent tax. Yeah. Uh, I want to change subjects uh, really quickly here before we have to end and talk about national politics. Uh, former South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford said he's going to challenge President Trump for the party's nomination uh, next year. And he's one of three notable primary challenges to the president, including Bill Weld, the former Massachusetts governor. I wonder what you make of this sort of internecine fighting that might take center stage next year in the presidential election. Well, I think it's part of the process. There's certainly you know, an opening to run for any seat in this country. Um, I don't think any three of them have the potential to take Donald Trump out in a primary. Um, you know, I don't know if they're just serving their best interests in terms of raising their profile, but um, you know, Trump is still held on to his base. There hasn't seemed to be any erosion um, there. Um, you know, I, I just think I don't know if it's what the motivation behind it is. Um, I don't see any three of them being able to rise to the level of winning a you know primary structure against the president so so the thing that uh, that i notice about this or think about when i think about this is not whether you can take out a sitting president in a primary which i can't remember when that's happened uh but that these challenges often cripple the incumbent going into the general election george hw bush for instance had to fight with pat buchanan for the 1992 um, uh, Republican presidential nomination and lost to Bill Clinton. Jimmy Carter had to fight with uh, Ted Kennedy for the 1980 president, Democratic presidential nomination and lost to, to Ronald Reagan. Um, that would, I guess, that would be concerning to me. If I were a Republican and supporter of Donald Trump, which I'm not, 
uh, I'd be worried that these primary fights are are forecasts of of a bad performance. Well, I mean, it's an open system, and and when I look at it, I've never I've never shied away from the fact of having a primary. Um, a primary serves the voters well. Um, you know, it's this honest exchange of ideas and policies and directions, and the person that can articulate it will usually come to the to the top. I mean, I think when you look back at George H.W. Bush, there was a third-party candidate in there. Um, you know, Jimmy Carter had some significant um, economic challenges that certainly probably proved the demise. And another third-party uh, an- John Anderson. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I think there's so many different dynamics to it, but I still go back to the fact that as we sit here today, um, President Trump has held his base, and I think the economy, if it continues to – you know, to continue to perform the way that it is, you know, I, I see it difficult. I, I've been watching very closely the, the Democrats' um, primary, their presidential primary system, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I, I'm I'm intrigued by it. You're not convinced by any of them, Phil? Well, it's not that I'm not convinced. <laughs> it's just the 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 extreme lurch to the left. Um, you know. He, I just don't think that this country is ready for that. Mm. Um, you know, I get the whole plastic straw and the hamburger debate, but I just don't think the rest of the country is ready to <laughs> embrace that. And I just, um, I, I see, I know how primaries work, and I know yeah, that it's an appeal to the base. Primary, right. um, you know, but but this idea of Joe Biden, you know, looking in the eye of someone at his uh, rally this weekend saying, I will eliminate fossil fuels. Now think about this scenario. What if Governor Granholm were able to get her, or I'm sorry, Governor Whitmer were able to get her 45 cent tax, uh, become vice president with on a Biden ticket, and he eliminates fossil fuels? <laughs> we're going to have a problem of where we're going to apply that 45 yeah. cents to. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I think the the primary has been interesting too for that struggle between sort of moderate Democrats and 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 more leftist ones. But but I think, again, the, the, the problem that the president is going to have is that he has held this base. He hasn't made a lot of new friends over the last four years. And if he were to try to repeat the electoral anomaly that he did last time, but while still losing the popular vote, I mean, that, that, I, I think that's a really tough hill to climb. Um, he just almost trying to get struck by lightning twice, I kind of feel. Well, so. and you add to that um, the intensity in which um, the attacks came, an unrelentless yeah. uh, level of attacks that, you know, he's essentially fought his way through all of that. I think that's part of the reason why the base is still there. Um, but you can't run this election on the last election's game plan. It, right. You know, it, it needs to change. This I think it's funny changed. that you talk about the attacks on him, but... I think he's the well, he's the provocateur here. He has so. uh, he has certainly um, returned fire. Yeah, right. Return right. fire. Phil Pavlo, former Republican member of the Michigan State Senate. Always great to catch up with you here Thanks. on Detroit Today. Thanks for coming. All right, that's going to do it for me today. Come back tomorrow when Congressman Andy Levin joins the show as lawmakers head back to Washington after their summer break. We're also going to talk about the water crisis in Newark and the lessons that that city can learn from Flint here in Michigan. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.